Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. Also, if you haven't bought Reconstructing Inclusion, Making DEI Accessible, Actionable, and Sustainable, my book, please pick it up. We also have a Substack now under the name Reconstructing Inclusion. I'll be putting more content on that Substack before you know it. Hello and welcome to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. My name is Omri Johnson. I'm your host and I'm joined today by fellow American, a Detroiter, Laura Smith. Laura, welcome to the Reconstructing Inclusion podcast. Well, I am so glad to be on here talking with you today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm excited to hear from you myself. I've had the pleasure of getting the chance to know you. And I can say this before we get started. Laura reached out to me and the first question she asked me is, how can I be helpful to you? And that stuck with me because I don't get those questions a whole lot. I usually get, let me tell you about myself. Laura didn't start with that. And so that struck me as somebody who really is intentional about how she contributes to other people. And it's something that I I value tremendously. So thank you for that start to our relationship. Laura, you're a fellow American living outside of our native land, and I want you to share your background about people, well, with people. But first, a favorite song or movie. That's how we always start one of these. A favorite song or movie that you go to over and over again. Uh, okay. This is personal, Amri. Okay. My grandparents were jazz musicians, so I grew up around quite a bit of jazz and blues. So one song that was always playing, and we've worn out several vinyls in this one, um, was Miles Davis, It Never Entered My Mind. And wow. So, yeah. You went to the archives, one of the Miles yeah. Davis. I mean, not everybody goes there. I'm a big jazz fan as well. So <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I, 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 I don't want to go into a jazz tangent, but now you just told me something that I'm going to have to tap over and over again. So our calls will no longer be about DEI. They'll all be about jazz. So... One book or person that's influenced you or inspired you in your life or career journey? Oh, wow. Actually, this is one kind of a more recent one, past couple of years. Do you know Aubrey Blanche? Yes. Yes. Well, Aubrey has been one of those people who like you reach out and it's been very super helpful and sat me down at some point. We were having a conversation about, you know, what it's like to work in this field in-house. And I think sometimes having that level of preparation just to be able to hear some perspectives, that is something that, you know, you always have to kind of keep a balance. It is so easy to get off balance in this field. And one of the things that I reflect on is that heart work is hard work. And there's a lot of hearts that goes into DEI. And you have to make certain that you're taking care of your own heart, you're taking care of your own self, your own mental health your own wellness as you do this. And that's something that every now and again, I'll get reminders looking at people who are in the space to do that, to take care of myself, to put things into perspective. And you have to do that. Otherwise, yeah, it's so hard to be able to help others when you don't first, you know, help yourself to be in a good place to be able to support others. Thank you for that. The math path has given us all a lot of really great insights into the space of DEI. 
-hmm. And I can say that's one of your big influencers. I would have to say that's a top one. And a lot of DEI people can probably say they're influenced, but not necessarily that they've had a chance to engage with Aubrey in that kind of way. Because every time I read something that Aubrey writes, it's on point and it's experiential Mm -hmm. and the research is solid. So it's really a clear message. So that's fantastic. Now, about Laura Smith. All right. So what would you like to know about me? I am an open book for you today. Okay. Let, what, so tell us where, how you got from there to here and all everything in between that you think would allow us to cover it in this short period of time we have on a podcast. All right. I am originally from Detroit, Michigan, like we said. And for me, I grew up with a family that worked in ministry. My dad is a minister. My mom was a youth minister. And, you know, they always worked side jobs and such. So for me, I always grew up looking at how can you support a community? How can you be able to add value to that? And that was a huge part of what I grew up with and what I lived with. For me, I saw a lot of people that I grew up with in Detroit, maybe not necessarily make it out of that city. I didn't perhaps grow up in the best parts of town, you'd say. But the thing I always see is it's a very small world. If you don't have role models, a very small world. If you don't have people and examples to look up to. And my dad was in the military for quite some time. And when I was a kid, he was like a weekend warrior. And my dad actually traveled a lot. And he had all these pictures and stories about places around the world. And I wanted to know, how can I get around the world and not have to risk my body <laughs> in the meantime, you know, outside of military and things like this? So I went into linguistics, actually, and I studied sociolinguistics. And I worked in that space looking at, essentially, how your accent or your language and the way you speak, the way you form your words can affect access to housing, employment, how it helps to shape your identity, things like this. And that's a big part of my background in terms of things I love to look at. And communication became a massive part of that. At some point, I realized that a person has to make money. And academia is not necessarily like the way to do that because, you know, poor people have bills. So a thing that I had to do was get a job. And I ended up working in consulting and working with different companies. And education and teaching, I've actually got my teaching certification Oh, gosh, 18 years ago now? Yeah, that's always my side hustle in that sense, training. And so I've been working as a teacher, working as a trainer, and working as a consultant out in Europe for quite some time now, over 10 years, 10, 12 years now, out in Germany and in Finland, and getting a chance to be able to essentially first use things with communications, but transitioning at some point, looking, working with startups and scale-ups and from there, uh, I went back and got my MBA, and we're looking at you know, essentially growth and how exactly we can see how companies are scaling and what's going to predict that. And that brought me back to almost the sociolinguistics and the sociology side of things for me, because I was looking at essentially communities within companies. I was looking at behavior and how exactly can you bring people into different organizations. And it's kind of like, how do you integrate people into a society in that sense? Some similar kind of questions. And when I was looking at things that are going to predict growth, inclusion was one of the most reliable things, particularly at the early stage startup side of things. So I started 
diving deep into that because I would hear a lot of folks researching diversity, 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 but not so much inclusion in terms of what actually is going to plug people in and be empowered to be their best, to do their best, to be able to thrive. And so for me, that kickstarted a whole thing and I ended up starting a research agency, Validay, where I work with different companies, primarily investors, to be honest, when we look at different startups and scale-ups and we investigate their ability to grow and how exactly they're doing with regards to DEI and responsibility. And I have been working in-house occasionally with, for instance, Bolt, which is the largest mobility or fastest mobility platform in Europe and Africa, and currently working leading DEI at Volt, which is a fantastic delivery platform. It has, it's like your mobile on an app, which is kind of nice. So you can pretty much order anything there, but primarily a lot of folks work and use it with food delivery and this sort of thing. So yeah, my thing is making certain that we're doing right and we're including that we're empowering all kinds of people and making certain that world, that big world that we're in is accessible for different people, that people can be able to thrive in it and be their best, wherever company they're working in, what, whatever they're doing, they have that right to be the best person they can be there. No, that's fantastic. You shared a couple things that the way you framed them, and I had heard you say this before, you talked about why inclusion really made the difference mm-hmm. versus you know, we can say diversity or representation, and there's lots of ways to look at diversity beyond just single characteristics. But when you talked about inclusion, that obviously, given my book, Reconstructing Inclusion, and my kind of philosophy about inclusion, that struck me. Tell me more about what you found, both because you didn't do this kind of haphazardly. You didn't go in and say, you need more inclusion. You actually looked at data. <laughs> so I'm curious about what led you to that conclusion and the, the work of Validay? Yep. So essentially looking at multiple companies, and this is originally attached to a thesis project where we were looking at scale-ups and growth predictions. And for me, my contribution to that project was looking at essentially inclusion. And we were also looking at diversity from my side as well. But when I was looking at this, I think People oftentimes are focused on diversity metrics because there was this confounding factor. Okay? So you'd have companies with high diversity and high inclusion do really well. And they would often tout these things as being because they are diverse, they did really well. Okay? However, companies that had high diversity but low inclusion, those are ones that did not do quite as well, in fact. So it wasn't the same boost that we're talking about that you see advertised everywhere. And we look at inclusion, a lot of things that I was looking at would be measurable things like <clears throat> you can do network analyses, for instance, and you look and see how plugged in, how connected people would be. You could take a look at how long it would take for people to be able to find information. We look at the onboarding process. How long did it get for people to get up to where they were evaluated to be fully plugged in and that's, or a, fully competent, able to execute in their area? Those kind of things were significant. Language things as well, uh, particularly in companies that had a language policy. Uh, So if they were an English company, English language company, and they have different languages in the organization, they're importing people from around the world to work in that company there, and they were told that English is the language that they'll be able to work in. If you saw that there would be instances, people would say that there would be issues of not being able to access things linguistically, that was a major thing. When you saw that people were for instance, recruiting within their circle as well. 
One of the biggest predictors for growth, in fact, was whether or not people can get outside of their friendship circle. Yeah, by the third round of hires. And that was something where you could find that, you know, if they didn't do that, they were 40% less likely to be able to make it to the five-year mark. So these are things where you look at and you say, okay, this is really important that you want to consider a lot of these things. It makes a difference in terms of your investment. If you're investing in these kind of companies, it makes a difference in terms of the company that you're growing and some things you can consider from an early stage. Wow, that's powerful. Did you publish any of that? Those things are being published. That was associated with a university project. So that's under a thing called MODA. That's with various Finnish and Swedish universities that are associated with this. But for my side, I was looking at communication dynamics, mm -hmm. and that's something you can find actually on my website if you're interested. Okay. Yeah, we're, we'll make sure we have that link in the show notes because that's fascinating. And that, that, you know, the use of data with that level of nuance, Laura, in our space is still relatively new mm. because you looked at questions that were thinking about what does sustainability look like for the company, not just for the DEI work. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a different conversation mm. than oh, we're trying to measure something for the DEI purpose versus the organizational mission and value purpose. And that's quite fascinating. So you've, you've worked outside of the U.S. past 10 years. What have you learned about people and their experience in organizations? You gave one example. Like, what is it that when you see, if you were to do some comparison between what we see in the U.S. and Europe, is it dramatically different or are we basically interested in the same things, but thinking about them and talking about them differently? Well, I think you have to consider what work is in different contexts, right? I mean, so in the States, work is this essential thing. This is part of your identity, right? You are looking to level up in your career because you're leveling up yourself almost in that sense, right? There are aspects of that that mean so much. There's a financial aspect. There's no real social support there. So your job is your means of eating. It's, your, it's attached to your, your ability to go to the hospital, your insurance and things like this. Work is so significant, so essential that I think it takes, it makes sense that it's, you know, been a factor that we've been thinking about. You know, DEI has been a factor we've been thinking about for a long time in the U.S. context. Work is a part of life in Europe. It is something that funds life. It is something that is, it occupies eight hours of your day, but it is not your life and it is not necessarily who you are. And I think that is bigger, you know, mindset shift that you have to have when you think about what this is. So it is something that's important for a lot of people, it's important for most people, but the reality is what that importance is different. And it's something that when you're taking a look at this and you're thinking about how you are approaching what the expectations are of that work experience, when you're gauging these things, um, when you're evaluating this and you're saying, and you see that people have said, ah, you know, how do they feel? Do they feel included? Do they feel that they belong at work? Well, that's a loaded word, belonging anyway. But when you talk about, do you feel like you belong at work? You may get lower scores for that in Europe, but it doesn't mean they're less engaged. It doesn't mean that they're less valuable employees. They may not necessarily feel that they have to belong there or that that work belongs to them per se. And belonging has a sense of ownership to it. So you have to think about, does the job actually own you, you know? 
And those are considerations that we don't really think about so much in the U.S. context because perhaps the job does own us more there. But these are things that you have to think about from a cultural standpoint and the social context that an organization exists in. That's fascinating. The meaning of work shifts contextually depending Mm -hmm. on where you've been. And I've actually observed that here in Switzerland where people will have a, they'll work 40 or 50% on one job and then they'll go and they'll pursue their passion with the rest of their time. Mm -hmm. And so it's still an opportunity to make money for many of them, but they're not so concerned about the revenue. And Mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur for most of my life, I'm always concerned about the revenue. So, so that whole orientation is like, what? You have a business and you're not, you know, I just really, I really like to do this. And I really like to make this kind of like, oh, yeah, me too. And. That's kind of funny because I'm from Detroit, right? And there, I would say the biggest hobby is a side job. So I think people recreationally work and that's a big thing. So they would have your full day. You can work in the factory. You can work doing whatever you're doing. And then after that, you go to the studio and then, you know, you do your music thing, you do your side gig, you do your podcast. So there's so many things that people are doing that are actual jobs on the side for fun. So I guess there's some overlap there. So again, you've been living outside of the country for 10 years. What have you learned about Laura? Let me, let me give this caveat. When we talked, you grew up in Detroit and Detroit is you know, if we go back to the Parliament Funkadelic days, it, it's a chocolate, it's a chocolate city, right? It is. And so you said you became black. Tell me about that. Yeah. So for those who don't know, Detroit is probably, when I was growing up there, it was somewhere around probably 85% um, black. And so in that sense, I had a lot of freedom to be a very broad version of myself. I didn't have to be boxed in. I didn't have to represent all the blackness in my identity every day. I was just, I was a person. And obviously I was very aware of my blackness because my mom would, my dad would drive me to school. And I went to schools in like Sterling Heights and which is often called Sterling Whites for a reason. So I would be the black kid there for many of my classes, sometimes the first person in the school, and we would get pulled over by the police quite often on our way because we clearly did not belong there. So I did have an awareness of my blackness, but I always had a community. Like I said, my family, you know, they're ministers, so there's always the black church, and that's a big thing. That was something that I grew up in. And there, once again, you can just be a person. Now, when I went to other contexts, an aspect of my personhood took on more significance. And that's something that people put more perspectives on it. I remember when I went to Stanford, they have a blacklist, right? It's a like a mailing list. I don't know, they still have it. Very good if they do, but... This, this FYI for the listeners, it's a good blacklist. <laughs> it's a mailing list where they would give like tips and resources and support for people who are black in some way. But I remember thinking when I got put on that, and particularly when I went to something like some event, I was probably the only person from like inner city America there. A lot of the folks there, we had some Caribbean folks, a lot of African folks, people from around the diaspora. But blackness didn't mean my experience in the world. 
And that's where I was like, hmm, I don't know if, you know, if I felt so tightly associated with that label in that context there. When I moved to Europe, though, and after a while of different things happening, of course, back in the States and this George Floyd situations and such, and then also just being an immigrant in the country, Finland, that I'm in right now, that is just really, really pale, you realize that your experience, no matter what you came from, you are where you are now. And Blackness took on a different meaning at that point. So when I walk out the door, if I'm wearing some very casual clothing, if I don't have like my laptop with me or something like that, I'm just as Black as any person that they may consider to be a quote-unquote undesirable immigrant in that sense, or a refugee or something like that. I'm as Black as any African that they might have stereotypes about. I'm as Black as any Caribbean that they might think can or can't do certain things. So that's when I realized I kind of joined a new club. And in this club, I embrace this Blackness because it's something I realized I can be there for more people and I can support more people. And in, in embracing this, I'm able to open a door for more people as well. People who look like me, people who come from different places, sure, different experiences. But like I said, everybody ought to have the ability to be able to thrive where they are. Yeah. And so it's something where I realized becoming Black allowed me to help more people also labeled that thrive. Thank you for sharing that. I think I've had a lot of th thought thinking about this. Mm -hmm. And I probably, I don't know if I did it or if the way I, I'm acculturated, the way I'm perceived, mm -hmm. because you said something interesting is I'm still trying to sort this out. For most people, I'm an expat. I'm an American expat. And I don't know the distinction between me being an immigrant to this country and being an expat other than connotation and the financial dynamics that come with working for a big multinational company, which I used to do, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm still, on, I, I, we have to unpack that. We might not have time now, but that notion of immigrant versus expat is yeah. one that's, yeah, that, that's a distinction that I still haven't gotten 100% clear on. My buddies were in the U.S. like, man, you an expat. Stop. <laughs> but no, 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 Wonder, I need you to understand this, okay? So we've yeah, yeah. got this concept of a, you know, a passport, right? This notion of these are basically modern day freedom papers, right? Right, right? These are your freedom papers. And back in the old days, the difference between a free black and a slave one was just a piece of paper. And that's what we've got right now in terms of that social class distinction. That paper in your pocket that paper that you got from your work experience, those references, that paper that you have, you know, financially in your bank account, mm -hmm. those papers are your freedom papers. And those mm -hmm. are the things that, de that determine how you're going to be treated in this world. But not everybody has a privilege of those. Papers. Right, right. And they're no less people. So these are things that sometimes I like to make certain we think about the labels that we embrace. This yeah. is sociolinguist in me again, but like, think about the labels that we embrace. Who is it? embracing as well who is it cutting out and are we doing any good in the choice that we make absolutely now that's beautifully stated and apropos i'm going to shift a bit to the world of startups you've been traversing this world and in the dei space it's still a little premature so to speak it's a startup world in so many ways hasn't really grasped dei to the extent that i think it could but when i talk to you 
the way you've introduced it is really extraordinary into the startups and scale-ups that you've worked with. When you think about what startups and scale-ups can do to make DEI normative and really embedded into how business gets done, what advice would you give? Hmm. I would say be intentional. Okay. Um, intentionality is a thing. And sometimes I realize that with startups, there is this existential crisis. They're trying to survive. They're trying to get some funding. They're trying to get product market fit. They're trying to connect with the people who are going to make their business thrive. And I get that. But the fact is, your business is going to thrive with the people that you bring in to build whatever product or service that you're making. So be intentional about that because that is the first asset you have to work with. The people are the value, okay? So you want to make certain that you are getting maximal value. And that's not just getting, but giving that as well to the people. Invest back into them in that sense. So when we think about how we want to include people, you know, the habits and the choices that we make. If you choose, for instance, you're speaking a language around people that not everybody understands. That is something that I get it. You have your culture, you want to be able to preserve these things. Also understand you cut people out of those conversations. And do you have the actual luxury of being able to exclude people at an early stage? Like how many hours in a day do you have to kind of sideline people? You have to think about inclusion more strategically in terms of how exactly we're doing this. When you think about the team that you're bringing in, do they understand the markets you're trying to reach? Do they have the breadth of experience and exposure to the different communities that you're going to try to get to, that you're going to try to, you know, make connections in, that you're going to try to sell to? If they don't, if you all went to the same school, you all grew up within 100 kilometers of each other, how are you really going to make a global product or global service? Do you have that? Do you have the diversity of experience and perspectives that you're going to need to be able to do the thing that you're out there to do? So in a way, it's not just a matter of just surviving. I want people to think about the possibility of a life beyond that, a business beyond just that crisis of making it today. Because ultimately, you're trying to build something that's going to be there as well for tomorrow. And so keep that in mind and understand that sometimes you have to make that uncomfortable choice of being uncomfortable. <laughs> and that's a thing. And it's easier to build in that kind of resistance in the earlier stage and have that be a part of your DNA as a company, the thing that you're going to be replicating Absolutely. as you scale, than it is to add it on later. Because that's when you get the growing pains. That's when you have a lot of things that have fossilized already that are going to be very, very hard to change. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I remember Doc Rivers said on a, a special about that for there were several coaches on it. And he said that pressure is a privilege. So being uncomfortable to me is a privilege. Like you're trying to grow something. Hmm. You're trying to work through what is it inevitably going to produce some roadblocks and some have some failures. Mm. And I think that's what makes companies, I, I have this philosophy, I've, I've only talked about it occasionally. I think it's that mindset that you just described that makes co companies what Nassim Talib calls anti-fragile. Mm. They can bounce back from stressors and get better rather than 
just be in the space of surviving a stressor. Hmm. You know what? I, I don't think this is an easy thing at all. No, no, I don't. no, no, no. And, and I think about this because when we talk about that ability to bounce back from failure, I'm very keenly aware that, for instance, when it comes to like the, the startup space, when it comes to funding, there are certain demographics that when you fail, you are considered a failure. Mm -hmm. And there are certain demographics when you fail, you are considered to have had a learning opportunity. And there are people will get, they'll fail and they'll fail and they'll fail and they'll get opportunity after opportunity after opportunity because people will think of this as, ah, this person must have learned. They must have grown. They must, they'll do better next time. And other ones, they were considered a gamble to begin with. And if the gamble didn't pay off initially, people get a little wary about reinvesting in that person. And I do understand that. So when it comes to building out that luxury of being resilient, Understand that a lot of people that have not had opportunity have had to be darn near perfect to get to the stage where you consider them for that opportunity, okay? And so they may not have that, they may not be very well accustomed to bouncing back. So I think we have to consider some grace periods. We have to consider how can we build in the safety to fail? Yeah. And, and that's, that's a sobering uh, thought because I think that happens quite a bit. And I still, what I'm left with oftentimes is when those people that have the privilege to fail, mm -hmm. oftentimes many times over and over again, it's because the relationships are such that you get the benefit of the doubt. It's not just relationships. I think mm -hmm. it's also affinity. And I think we spend a lot of time in the DEI space doing some things to make sure we take care of the most marginalized groups in the corporate kind of context of marginalized, right? Mm -hmm. d d have you spent time really trying to build bridges of context and understanding with folks across geographies or across cultures that are in the same geography? Because that's been the biggest thing to me is like people just aren't familiar mm -hmm. with folks, particularly those that they haven't gone to school with or people that don't resemble people they've gone to school with either by experience or, you know, any other attribution. It just makes me wonder where in the DEI space we can do better at creating those bridges of context so that people don't automatically write somebody who hasn't had the same experience as they had off. Yeah. Is that a conversation that ever comes up? Because when you start thinking about investors, they need to their superpower could be that they're building context and they start seeing how they can invest in some folks outside of the circles that they've been accustomed to Absolutely. over and over. I think it's over 90% of funding. When you look at who they fund, I mean, these are people that are connections with people that, that were recommended. So people that they knew. So it's not like people are just accepting these, these cold calls and such per se for most of the deals and such that happen. They are network deals. Here's the thing that I think about in terms of intentionality and building those bridges. You have to understand people to be able to serve them. And ultimately, we are a service industry, okay? We are trying to help people, to help organizations to be better. And there's no way that we can actually pull that off without understanding the people that we're working with, without understanding their context and their realities. If we don't spend that time, 
in our industry doing so, we run the risk of, yeah, we'll build bridges, but those are bridges to kind of culturally conquer instead of connect. So we're kind of then taking on an idea in our context and we're imposing it on other people. And that's an ideological colonialism that doesn't serve us well, okay? What we want to do is to think about where people are and their realities. You want to understand what are the priority considerations? Who are the marginalized groups in their area? What are the realities that are applicable there? Because if you take the categories and you take the labels and you take the things that you think are relevant from where you are and try to say this is something that's important to focus on elsewhere, then you're missing the people. You're, as a teacher, we always say, teach the students, not the lesson. You have to make certain that you're always keeping the humanity in mind. Mm -hmm. And that's the crux of our job. That's what we have to do. I'll always agree to choosing humanity. So that's one of the ones that we can agree with all day. I, and that brings me to the Nordics conversation. Mm -hmm. I, I've seen emerging conversations about the dynamics that are happening in the Nordics, uh, Norway, Sweden, and Finland in particular, to some extent, mm -hmm. and Denmark, emerging conversations about inequality and discrimination. How would you characterize the current state of people and organizations and the tensions and complexity of our differences and similarities in the country you live in, as well as amongst some of your neighbors in the North? That's actually interesting. I was just going through some data in terms of what we would define as the topical focuses for DEI, right? And different countries. So within the company that I'm in, uh, asking, so what do they prioritize when they talk about these things? And in the Nordics, there is the focus on gender primarily, and people will have that discussion about gender, sometimes LGBTQIA plus identification, that's a consideration. Pride is something that you'll see celebrated across these markets here. And so that does get certain degree of visibility. What you don't see spoken about nearly as much is about like race and ethnicity. Though it is relevant, particularly like in Finland, it's been ranked from various measures as one of the most racist countries in Europe when it comes to like employment and things like this. So it's a real thing. It's not that these things don't happen, but the fact is uh, a lot of things are kind of based off of just generic xenophobia. And in smaller countries, the culture even professionally, is such that you think about your smaller community. And then the further out someone might be from your community, the more marginalized they're going to be. You kind of layer on the identities. Ah, gender, okay. Uh, they're from a different country. Mm-hmm, all right, that's the thing. They speak a different language. Oh, that's, that's a consideration. Different color, oh, that's way out there. And these are things that add on, and they become these progressive barriers to getting in and getting seen. These are these walls to being seen as viable and competent talent. And that is something that I would love to help more companies kind of get over and around. And not just to say that we have these people here to fill our need and to, these are readily exploitable human beings kind of thing. We, this, that's not exactly what we're after, right? But we do want to make certain that we're thinking about how are we, in fact, making sure that we're extending opportunity in a fair way. How are we making certain that 
people get opportunities to not just be this perfect, awesome exemplar in every case. That's also cheap labor <laughs> with all that. How can people be good people, good employees that entails all the aspects of that humanity? They are going to have to grow. They're going to have to, they're going to make mistakes too. They're going to bounce back. They're going to have to learn some things and grow and develop. Do they get the opportunity? Do they have equitable growth in that sense? These are considerations that we have to have beyond just the who's in the room. It's about who's allowed to thrive while there. And that the conditions are created for them at wherever they might be. And mm -hmm. I, I think sometimes thriving gets homogenized. If this is what helps so-and-so thrive, this will help everybody thrive, right? Oh, Particularly yeah, if they're okay. the predominant group. So I, I, that, that, that resonates with me. So we're going to move towards the last couple questions. You've talked about data and a lot of DEI influencers on LinkedIn talk about the use of data. You're doing some really fascinating things. You shared some of the things that you've done in the past. What's really on your plate right now with your current firm? And it seems like a little bit more anticipating than reacting. And that's really cool to me. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're up to and why did you start approaching the, the work with, in, with data in this way where DEI is concerned? Yeah. So one thing I think about is making certain that what one is doing is not just an approach that you're taking because it's the way that you approach things. You want to make certain you're approaching things that's most relevant for the people that you're talking to. So what I like to do is try to catch my own expectations and assumptions and I want to take a look and find out, firstly, how are we? I always do kind of a pre-audit when I come into a company. And that's a fun thing that I'll spend the first like six months kind of working in, particularly for global companies where if you're in 20, 30 countries and such, it takes a little while to kind of get around. But the gist is you want to be able to understand a few things. Firstly, you want to understand safety. That's the first thing you want to look at. How safe are people to be able to engage in this topic? And that can come down to thinking about legalities of things. It can come down to thinking about professional safety, these kind of things. What kind of protections do you have, right? You also, of course, want to take a look at, you know, what's the track record the company has? You're never coming in from scratch. You may be the quote-unquote first person that they've hired for something that they're going to pay for to do something. But the reality is people have been talking and speaking up probably for years before you came there. So what has been the discourse? What's the conversation you're jumping in, in the middle of? What's the story that you're coming in already in the middle of this book? So you have to make sure that you understand what that is, the context. And you have to look at the readiness to respond, right? So for instance, it's a great thing to be able to, people love to do the audits and say, oh, great, we did the survey. And they love doing these generic surveys that they'll toss out there. They'll toss out all kinds of questions that aren't relevant for that market and that aren't relevant for what those people are able to respond to at that particular time. And what's the upshot of that? Well, then they get people who have volunteered their time and their energy and their thoughts to something that is just going to basically die from neglect. It's going to wither away. 
And that's going to destroy trust. It's going to essentially make people averse to participating again. So you want to make certain that you can understand what do you need to scope to? What are some things that are actually actionable? What are some things people are able to respond to? Consider the bandwidth, the resources, the reality people have. And that's what you assess. Also, of course, you look at, are there external pressures? Do you have any regulatory considerations? Are there any things that's relevant for your business? And you want to make certain you have some connection that's organic and authentic towards the actual organization itself. So you can't just come in talking about, hey, DEI is the thing to do. It has to be something that you can connect either to the strategic objectives, to the cultural identity of the organization, to who it says it is and what its mission is. There has to be some kind of fundamental connection or anchor between what you will be doing and what they already are, who they already are. So those are things you typically look at in a pre-audit, and that's kind of where we're wrapping up right now. And then we essentially define the priorities with leadership to be able to say, okay, this is what we're going to do, and this is you know, how this is going to be integrated into the organization. Because that is a thing that I will look at. I don't necessarily like to be in a place where DI is just talk, and I will leave places if it's not the case, if, if I don't figure head roles. But I want to make certain that we can map out something that's a goal, that's a measurable goal, something we can actually be able to say if we're achieving, if we're getting there, or if we need to pivot at some point. And those are the kind of things that you have to have to be able to keep momentum and accountability. So that's what we look at in early stage DEI development, you know, initiative and area and companies. Fantastic. So we've gone over time in the past on our calls. And this time I'm going to say we have to figure out how we can get you back here after <laughs> you start putting some of these things that you're doing with your new company in place. But my, my last question for you before I ask if you have anything you'd like to add, do you miss your native land and is moving <laughs> back something that comes up for you in a typical year? What a question. What a question. All right. So my family is back home and that is my anchor. This is why it's still technically home in a way. My parents are there and they are aging. And I do have to think at some point I'll probably have to go back and provide care because that, that darn social system. However, were that not the case, I sometimes think of the U.S. as being like an abusive relationship. <laughs> I do. It is. In a way that it's kind of like, you know, that narrative of you'll never find anything better than me and this is the best that you can get and that kind of thing. And they'll just mistreat you consistently. And you would just think, ah, but if I were to step out of this, it's, it's going to be so much worse. I would encourage anybody in the same way that I would encourage anybody in those kind of actual relationships to think about exploring other options. How can you safely extract yourself or find something that's going to be the best thing for you? So consider your actual reality, consider what your possibilities are and understand that the narrative being told to you may not be the something with you in mind, okay? It may not be in your best interest always. So consider that. Laura, thank you. Is there anything else that I should have asked you or that you would like to add to the dialogue before we close out? You know what? There was a person once who asked me this question of how are you going to care for yourself today? Mm -hmm. How are you going to support yourself in the work that you're doing? 
And how are you going to anchor yourself as you take on these harder tasks? And that was a very impactful conversation. And I would toss that question back out to you just to see, how are you thinking about taking care of yourself today, Omri? Wow. I usually don't get asked questions on my podcast, but <laughs> you know, I'm actually finished. It's 4.30 my time, PM. Mm -hmm. And this is my last meeting. So the way I'm going to take care of myself is I'm going to go down in my little gym and stretch until my son comes back to show me his new haircut. Aww. And I'm going to pre-prepare to go on holiday Friday. I say holiday now because I'm in Europe. I, we go on vacation to uh, Canary Islands to Tenerife on Friday. So taking care of myself by stretching my old legs that I worked out this morning and then um, kind of playing with my son because I've been gone for a couple weeks and then uh, getting him ready for bed and actually talking to my wife because we've barely had time to talk. <laughs> so <laughs> those are the ways that I'm going to take care of myself today. And I don't have a whole lot more work to do, a few kind of administrative things. So that's my answer and I'm sticking to it. Well, good for you. Good for you. Oh, I am so happy to hear that you're taking care of yourself. You're an important person in this world. So very glad that you are giving yourself the care and attention that you need. And I am looking forward to being able to see more good stuff come out of what you do in your podcast. And let me know if there's any other way to support you in the future. Okay. That's the theme that we started with. And that's the theme we'll conclude with. Laura Smith, it's been a delight. I hope this was helpful for everybody. Make it a great day. Peace. Have a great one. If you are committed or simply a little bit curious about how to make DEI accessible to everyone, actionable, that is unambiguously prioritized and sustainable, aligned with personal and organizational purpose, hit the subscribe button. Make it a great day. Peace.